Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, September the 17th, 2023. Uh, I haven't done a show for a few days. I was in the Philippines doing an event with Maria Ressa, my old friend, and on the uh, plane back uh, yesterday and today. I've been reading a really interesting new book. It's about to come out by David uh, Leonard. I think that's how I pronounce his name. He's an economist. I think he's the leading e economics journalist at the New York Times. He has a new book out. It's out next month. Ours was the shining future, the story of the American dream. Um, and Leonard argues that we've lost the dream, uh, his version of the dream at least, because of the structural changes in not just American economy, but also in American politics, and in particular, uh, the decline of American unions and the way in which American workers no longer have much power to determine either their political or economic future. Uh, and that, of course, accounts increasingly, at least according to Leonard, for our increasing inequality and the precariousness of uh, jobs in an American economy, increasingly driven by what some people call the precariat. One person who's done a lot of thinking about good jobs and the meaning of jobs in our digital age is my guest today, Zeynep Ton, is um, uh, a teacher at MIT in the business school, and she's also uh, involved with the Good Jobs Institute, an organization which I think she founded. Some of you will be familiar with uh, her 2014 book, The Good Jobs Strategy, and she has a new book out, um, uh, The Case for Good Jobs, which got long-listed for the FT uh, Book of the Year and is doing very well, both commercially and intellectually. Uh, and Zeynep is joining us from her home in West Cambridge in Massachusetts. Uh, Zeynep, I'm assuming you haven't read the Leon Hart book. Uh, I'm sure you'll find it quite interesting. But do you think um, he makes a good, it, there is a case to be made that uh, the, the disappearance or at least the increasing irrelevance, marginalization of unions explains many of the structural problems of the America of the 2020s. Yeah, I mean, I agree with his premise that American dream has faded for so many Americans. Um, th there is a ton of data that suggested even before the pandemic in the United States, 53 million people worked in jobs that pay a low wage. Um, if you in, in 1980s, 90s, uh, a good chunk of kids who were in high school and college, they and they ended up doing so much better than their parents. I think it's something like 80% of the kids did better than their parents. And now it's only 50% of the kids who do better than their parents. So I, you know, there's a ton of data that suggests that the American dream is fading. What resulted in that, it probably has a complicated answer. And the answer that I focus on is what companies have done to create good jobs with living wages, dignity, and, and respect for their workers. And, and, and I argue in my book that there's a lot that company leaders can do to create more good jobs. It's better for our society, it's better for their companies, it's, it's, and it's better for their customers. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, you're simply working with today's reality, for better or worse. I mean, you're not a historian. Uh, you're making a case for good jobs in uh, in an economy and in a society where good jobs or bad jobs are being determined by corporations, not by unions or indeed by the government. So that's just simply the reality. Zenip, you're you work in a in a business school, so you work a lot with corporations and future corporate leaders. A lot of people be watching this and thinking it's rather like having the the fox look watch over the hen house. Can we trust, or should we trust, corporations with good jobs? After all, uh, modern American corporations have mostly been in the business of cu uh, of cutting costs, eliminating jobs, and making work more and more marginalized and precarious? Look, financial-centric management has been at the forefront since 1970s. Companies are famous for doing anything that will increase their sales and lower their costs. So I understand where that mistrust comes from. Um, but what I will say, and I, you mentioned I'm not a historian. I'm not a historian. I'm not even an HR uh, professor, right? I My background is operations management. I study how companies are run. And early in my research, I have found that bad jobs cost companies a lot more than they may realize. In fact, I, I found out about this good job strategy because I looked at companies that were losing a ton of money in lost sales, lost productivity, uh, lots of mistakes because of high employee turnover, because their stores, I was looking at retail stores at the time, because they, their, their retail, retail stores were understaffed. I then found that even employee turnover alone cost them a ton of money it can range from 10 to 25% of the overall payroll dollars that they spent. So we don't have to trust the companies. Companies need to re recognize that bad jobs are costing them a lot more than they think in turnover, operational problems, lost sales, mistakes, lost productivity, etc. So Zeynep, you're making this case for good jobs in the language that companies understand in the language of the bottom line. You suggest that there's not a, so much of a moral case for good jobs, but an economic case. And if you want a company that prospers in the 2020s, uh, what you call great companies, they need to create not just good jobs, but perhaps even great jobs. Yeah, there's, there's an economic case and there's also a moral case, Andrew. Uh, when we work with companies through the nonprofit Good Jobs Institute I co-founded, uh, we run workshops, two-day workshops, and in those workshops, we oftentimes share with them their data on what percentage of their frontline employees, and we focus just on the full-time employees because a lot of service companies that we work with, retail stores, call centers, restaurants, pest control, etc., a lot of these companies also have part-timers. Uh, but when we present them data on what percentage of their full-time employees are making a living wage, or just the distribution of their uh, take-home pay. There's silence in the room. No leader, no executive I've met so far is proud of what they see when those data are presented to them. And, and a lot of leaders believe in that moral case too, but for too long, they have thought that even if they want to offer good jobs in, in, in principle, they can't afford to. So now this book makes the argument that, no, actually, you can't afford not to provide good jobs, especially if you want to be customer-centric. And 
the risk of system change to adapt what I call a good job strategy is a lot less risky than you may think. In the Leonard book, um, he's an economic historian and he writes extensively and he's certainly not the first or the last to do this about the Chicago school, about Robert Bork, about Ronald Reagan, about Milton Friedman uh, and what we now call neoliberalism, although that's a word that's bit soft and everybody uses it increasingly as a form of offense of the insult but is there something about the history or the period of neoliberalism from the 1970s perhaps still today that made the case not so much for good jobs but for low-paying jobs oh absolutely i think you know decades of business leaders were taught that labor is just another input to production so labor is just another cost to be minimized. And if you focus on maximizing your profits, of course, you minimize that labor cost as much as possible. Many leaders were taught that market pay is the right pay, even if it's not a living wage, even if it results in employees who are not able to focus on the job or be productive because pay is so low. Um, since then, you know, lean and mean is what leaders have been taught and I'm an operations professor. I'm a st student of Toyota production system. Lean and mean is not what drives efficiency and what drives value. So how leaders have been taught and what they've experienced makes them, you know, not even imagine that they could be, there could be a better system. There could be something else. Um, and we've had this since 1970s, as you mentioned. Who created um, Zainab, the theoretical foundations for this leanness and meanness when it comes to jobs. I've mentioned Bork and Friedman. Are there, are, are there particular academics, theorists on efficiency, on the successful company who we can point back to and say they were wrong? Yeah, I mean, hand in hand, when people talk about Milton Friedman, then there's the article by Jensen and Meckling that's cited, um, which created this type of mindset, but it, but, but, but it is, I mean, it's just widely accepted now in the business world. What's widely accepted? That labor is just another cost. Lean and mean is what drives efficiency. Minimize your costs at all costs, even if it hurts workers, even if it hurts customer service. That type of mentality, the financialization of business is what has been um, seen as normal now. You, you teach at a business school at MIT, um, you're in Cambridge, there's another business school up the road, Harvard Business School, very influential. We've had a number of professors from these different business schools. They all seem to be challenging the assumptions of leanness and meanness, suggesting that the moral company is not just the good company, but this successful company. How much is your case for good jobs part of that? reaction against the, the, the neo the dominant neoliberalism of the 70s 80s and 90s yeah i mean let me provide examples from what you mentioned great great companies and what they do and this is the opposite of what you know the neoliberalism approach uh, suggests so these companies and i will provide examples from lots of settings progressive insurance costco wholesale costco is one of the world's largest retailers um, Toyota, um, Quick Trip, a convenience store chain with gas stations, Mercadona, a Spanish supermarket chain. I can go on and on about these uh, companies. And 
what they focus on is their primarily they, they, their fiduciary duty is to their customers. So they are obsessed with improving the value that they offer their customers. Once you make the focus on improving the value for your customers, the priority, the reason for being, then being frontline focus is so natural for them. Because if you want to create value for the customer, the work that frontline employees do is what drives that value. In a retail store, if the shelves are not stocked, if the merchandise doesn't flow well, if the fresh produce is not really fresh because somebody made mistakes, if the checkout line is not moving, then you can't create value for the customer and you can't execute operationally. If a company operates with high turnover or employees make so little that they can't focus on the job or if they're not empowered to do a good job. So, so for these leaders, it's just so obvious that once you're customer centric and that's the best way to run a business, then you have to be frontline centric. And I, you know, I, I, I was I did my doctorate at Harvard Business School and I taught there for a long time. And what ends up happening. So I will I, I will um, uh, agree with some of the work that came out of there, especially the work by Rafaela Sadun and her colleagues, you know, which shows that most companies in the world and they looked at thousands of companies do not implement some good management practices that we've known to be good practices that drive value. And this is, you know, the, the, the good practices that produce operational excellence. And in my research, I have found that once companies operate with high turnover, there are so many things that they can't do that we academics will say good management practices. For example, they can't hire the right people and train them well because unit managers are constantly fighting fires. They can't empower their workers because they don't trust them because they haven't hired the right people because they haven't uh, trained them well. They can't manage their capacity well. They can't develop high expectations. They can't even have, have strong unit managers. So they can't implement basic management practices that business schools all around the world teach. So I think most of us in academia would agree that the way that most companies are run with low pay, high turnover is not the best way to run companies. And now there's a ton of evidence that shows that that's the case. Interesting, Zainab. It's an important point and one that I think will be very relevant for not just corporate leaders, but also workers. We're talking with Zainab Ton, the author of the case for good jobs. I want to remind everyone that uh, this show is sponsored by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. All our guests, including Zenit, will get an annual subscription. I'm going to run a short ad for um, for Liberties, just reminding you of what it is. And then we'll be back with Zenit to talk more about customer centricity, the companies that are doing it right and wrong, and what exactly a good job is. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more about Liberties and subscribe at libertiesjournal.com. Uh, I am talking with Zainip Ton, the author of a really interesting and important new book. It's long listed for the 
uh, FT Business Book of the Year 2023. The shortlist is going to come out later next week. The Case for Good Jobs. First part, uh, Zainab ended talking about customer centricity. You mentioned a number of companies, Zainab, some I'd heard of, some I have to admit I hadn't. The two companies that you didn't mention uh, are perhaps the most powerful in retail. Perhaps they employ more people, I think, than anyone else. Walmart and Amazon, are they creating good jobs? Are they the solution or are they the problem, Amazon and Walmart? So I will focus on Walmart versus Amazon. Um, and, and, and I'm delighted that you asked this question because Walmart's, you know, Walmart has their superstore, but Walmart also has Sam's Club, uh, which is a $60 billion arm of, more than $60 billion arm of Walmart. And one of the companies that I cite in my book that recently adopted the good job strategy is Sam's Club. They made some pay raises initial pay raises that were 5 to $7 an hour from a basis of $15 an hour. And they made lots of operational changes along with pay. If we get to what is the good job strategy, we will see that it's not just about pay. It's about winning with your customers. That requires, of course, a great team. So that's why you have to invest in pay. You have to invest in other benefits. But it also requires setting your employees up for success through specific operational choices. So, so Sam's Club is one of the companies that adopted the good job system. And what did they get in return? Well, their customer satisfaction and sales have increased dramatically. Their employee turnover went down 25% for hourly workers, even for more for managers. Their productivity improved previously. It was hard for them to have one or 2% increases in their efficiency. Now they realize a 20% increase. So these companies are at, at least Sam's Club and Walmart is on the journey as well. Since 2014, Walmart has made a lot of investments. They are earlier in their journey and it's a much big, bigger company than Sam's Club. But these companies are changing. And as they change, they're winning with their customers more and more as well. You dodged the bullet on Amazon. I'm going to come back at you with that. Um, I assume, Zainab, you've, you've, you've done some oh. research on Amazon. You know, Jeff Bezos built the company very successfully on the notion of customer centricity. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people Amazon employ, but it always seems to be more yes. and more hundreds of thousands. And some of the jobs are high paying and exciting. Others seem very depressing, especially in their warehouse jobs and their customer service jobs. What kind of job, quote unquote, is Amazon doing on the good jobs front? Yeah, you know, in, in my first book, Good Job Strategy, I said business leaders have a choice in how they make money. They can either choose to pay their employees low pay, operate with high turnover, and all the problems that come with it. They can still make money in that way, or they can choose to pay their employees better, offer an environment that increases their productivity and contribution and operate with low turnover and great customer service. And, and both approaches are profitable. Now, Amazon chooses the high turnover approach and, and I have not studied them. I, have, I don't have data from them, but it's also a company that was able to, um, to get away with not making money for a long, long time from their core business. Right. So 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 um, there are some special things about Amazon that don't apply to retail businesses that have to make money 
in their core business and that's how their investors evaluate them. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, there's another story there. We've done a number of shows on Amazon on their strategy in terms of Wall Street. It's interesting you bring up uh, Walmart. They're a controversial company. You obviously know a million times more about them than I do, uh, but we've done shows on them in the past, which mm. uh, in which the report card on them is still at best ambivalent. Rick Wartzman, I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Mm -hmm. um, he has a new book out called uh, Still Broke, Walmart's mm. Remarkable Transformation and the Limits of Socially Conscious Capitalism. Mm. So the first part of the subtitle suggests you're right. The second suggests that maybe there are limits. What are the, Wartzman believes that most Walmart employees and that, and I, I didn't get, I can't remember if we talked about Sam's Club, but most people who work on the shop floor uh, at Walmart or, 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 or in distribution are still using his words broke. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, I mean, one needs to look at Walmart data to say that, uh, but I will, I, let me talk about the general premise of Wartsman argument, which I which I agree. So we have a huge societal problem that tens of millions of people in the United States have been left behind with unlivable wages, poor working conditions, unstable schedules. Right? This is a big societal problem that we must solve. Now, business leaders alone cannot solve this problem. You mentioned the first book when, when we started this show about the role of unions. Uh, unions have to play a role, right? The government with policy, minimum wages, laws around scheduling, tax incentives for increasing per worker pay perhaps, or at least changing to the tax code so that worker investments don't um, are, are not inferior to technology investments. So there are a bunch of things that the government can do. Um, thought leaders, business schools can teach differently. So there are lots of different stakeholders that could be involved and that should be in, in, involved to, to change the status quo in our society of tens of millions of people being left behind. Now, what I argue is that we also can't solve this problem without business leaders. Right? Business leaders alone cannot solve it, but we also can't solve it without business leaders. As the minimum, we need to show, business leaders need to show that this approach is profitable. It is sustainable for their companies. Because if it's not a profitable approach, if it's not a sustainable approach, it won't be sustainable for our society either. So, 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 so I agree with Rick's general premise that business leaders alone are not going to solve our societal problems. Yeah, and it's interesting. The, the Leonhardt book suggests that we can always, you know, it's, it's easy to blame Milton Friedman for everything, including good or bad weather. He's become a, an appropriate punch bag. But also progressives have some responsibility. You're right about government. Um, but what about what Leonhardt calls Brahmin liberals, that most progressives, particularly in places like Cambridge Mass and San Francisco, <laughs> They don't get it. They don't understand that their obsession with race or identity or some sort of outrage doesn't really touch on this fundamental problem in America, which you talk about, which are the tens of millions of people who, who are incapable of living a good life uh, because of their low-paying jobs. 
Yeah, sometimes uh, if I'm in a big group and it's it has something to do with DEI issues, I ask the audience, how many of you have um, think about DEI and talk about DEI and have specific departments allocated to DEI and everybody raised their hands. And then I and then the, I asked sorry, them, diversity, DEI meaning diversity, equity and inclusion. Oh, right? yeah. This is what you're talking about. I thought you uh, said DIY, DEI. So yes, that's Home Depot. Um, <laughs> Yes, and I've studied at home before as well. But 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 everybody raises their hand, right? And 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 talks about um, rice um, justice. And then I and then I asked the audience, how many of you in your organization looked at the lowest paid workers and see how many of them make a living wage? How many of them are able to have enough take home pay so that they can have control over their lives? Because low pay is associated. You know, when we talk about what's a good job. Low pay has it, it is such a big driver of a bad job because when pay is low or inconsistent, there are all sorts of problems for workers. They have more health problems. They have more mental health problems, physical health problems, cognitive health problems. Low pay is associated with an equivalent of 13-point drop in IQ because the brain is constantly thinking about pay-related things. Can I put food on the table? Can I take my kid to the emergency room? Can I afford this? Uh, but, but so many of us don't focus on this hugely important issue for workers because I think the reason is because it, it's just seen as an expensive thing to do. It's embarrassing as well, I think, for what, what Leonhard calls... Brahmin liberals with our fancy jobs on the coast at universities and big corporations. Um, so, so, so there's that piece. And of course, there's the political piece is that many of these low page workers are the ones voting for Donald Trump. Yeah. And one of the challenges, Andrew, is that we live such different lives. Those of us, the, the haves versus have nots. Right. We don't take the same, you know, we, we, we hang out in different places. We, we we don't interact all that much. And as a result, so many of us have lack of awareness of how important basic pay schedules, those things are for workers and, and, and their dignity. I know you have one really resonant anecdote from the book about a uh, a PayPal executive making a speech, uh, I think, in Arizona. T tell me that anecdote. It seems to capture all the the sadness and the hypocrisy that's going on when it comes to low-paid jobs in America today. Yeah, PayPal executives were volunteering at a at a food bank in in Chandler, Arizona, and the executive director of the food bank pulled them aside and said, "You know, a lot of people who come to this food bank to eat are your own employees." And that was a shock to them. And when they did an assessment, an employee financial wellness assessment, they found that something like two thirds of their frontline workers in, you know, working in places like their call centers were having financial security problems. So it was, they had huge lack of awareness, but what I respect about what they did was they looked into it and then they said, this who, is who, who were the executives? Uh, Dan, Shul Dan Schulman and his executive yeah. team. Um, and they said, this is unacceptable, like morally unacceptable. 
And of course, it's competitively unacceptable as well. But but once they looked into the data, this is why I keep telling people, like, look into the data. Stop doing surveys about how people feel about their jobs and whether they feel pride and meaning, etc. Look at pay data and look to see if people are making enough money to be able to take control over their lives. I have to admit, Zeynep, when I first saw the title of your book, The Case for Good Jobs, I assumed it was actually going to be a book about AI, which it really isn't. There are a couple of other books about AI on the long list. We've done interviews with Mustafa Suleiman, who's the co-founder of DeepMind, what he calls the coming wave, and with Simon Johnson, Power and Progress, both who see AI as being profoundly transformative, exciting, and also dangerous. I'm guessing for you as well, with AI, the case for good jobs um, becomes even more paramount as companies acquire the technology to replace their workers with algorithms. Yeah, it does become paramount and it always goes back to, remember we talked about customer centric versus those who think employees are just a cost to be minimized. So the impact of AI and technology automation on the work is going to depend on how we adopt these technologies. So if the mindset is people are just a cost and we must minimize that cost, then the tendency is going to be let's replace technology with people as much as possible, as extensively as possible. And one of the books you mentioned there was Power and Progress. My colleague Darun Ajemolu calls these so-so technologies, right? Implement technologies that don't even increase the productivity so much, but they substitute labor. So, so if, the, if the mindset is labor is a cost, then the tendency is to go for those so-so technologies that just substitute for labor. But if the mindset is great companies constantly improve value for customers and they are customer centric and therefore frontline centric, then the question is, how do we use AI? How do we use technologies to be able to improve the value for the customer? How do we use it to increase the productivity of our workers, their jobs, so that we can pay them more, so that they can generate more value and hence we pay them more? In fact, one of the examples, again, this is the Walmart Sam's Club. One of the reasons that they were able to make such big dramatic pay raises um, along with better jobs was because they embraced technology but they embrace technology with the questions of how do we improve value for the customer? How do, we, how, how do we save time for our employees so that we can pay them more and they can recreate more value for the customer? Well, the long, the long list is going to turn into a short list, I think, on Thursday of this week. I certainly hope your book will be on the short list just because I think it's such an important issue. Zeynep, let's end with a definition of what exactly a good job is in the America of the second half of the 2020s how would you define a good job yeah a good job you know everybody knows what a good job is for them and we might all weigh things like a sense of belonging recognition achievement meaning purpose differently but fundamentally a good job has to provide some minimum conditions so one is for the work to be designed for human beings who have brains, who have heart, not just a pair of hands. And the other condition is for pay to be high enough so that people can take control over their lives. When pay is so low that people are working multiple jobs, when they can't sleep at nights, when they're constantly stressing about money problems, 
all the other belonging programs, recognition programs, pizza parties, they're just a band-aid on a wound. Now, pay alone, it doesn't drive a good job, but the absence of sufficient pay makes the job a bad job. And the absence of sufficient pay guarantees high employee turnover. And once, as I mentioned uh, before, once companies operate with high employee turnover, then they can't create the conditions to be able to um, treat their employees with respect and, and dignity because they can't trust them.